Our second Bible reading is from Judges, uh, chapter 15, starting at verse 9. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, Why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him up with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, 
If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, All this time you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pin. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding corn in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me, with one blow, get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, 
Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Ashtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel for 20 years. This is God's word. Let's pray for God's help as we look at this wonderful passage together. Our Father, we, we need your spirit to give us eyes to see your truth. We need your spirit to give us hearts who are willing to receive it. And we need your spirit to help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ in the mess and the failure of Samson the hero. Amen. What do you think the greatest need of your life is? If, be honest, uh, so don't speak out loud. Um, great, what would make the biggest difference if only I had? How do you complete that? It's interesting, you put it into the internet, the greatest need of the world. You only have to get seven results down, and you get the Corby trouser press up here. It's extraordinary. <laughs> the wonders of Google. I don't know quite how the algorithms have worked that one out. But they, what do you think your greatest, greatest need is? As we've looked at throughout the, the book of Judges, we've seen a, a people who are consistently being attacked and overwhelmed by enemy forces, a people who consistently need a mighty military savior. And as we get to Judges 13 to 16, we get, if you like, the apex military hero of the book of Judges, Samson, the mighty, mighty man. And this is Samson, who he's known in popular culture. He's not just a Bible figure. He's known everywhere. Everybody knows about Samson and Delilah. Uh, even if you only know the Tom Jones song, it's, it's well known. The mighty man ruined by his weakness for women. It's there in children's Bibles. Can you imagine having your sinful failures as well known as that? How awful that would be. Your sin exposed before everybody. But in Samson, we see something that we need to learn. See, our greatest need is often not what we think it is. Or not what we think it is deep down. Throughout the book of Judges, it's felt like the Israelites, if you ask them, what's your greatest need? We need someone to get rid of the Philistines. We need someone to get rid of the Moabites. We need someone to get rid of the Ammonites. We've got people oppressing us, attacking us, destroying us. We need someone to get rid of them. But in, in chapters 13 to 16, what the writer does is, is he shows us what happens when they get the mightiest of mighty saviors imaginable. But... Sin is not dealt with. And the results are a disaster. The results are a disaster. And I guess the danger for many of us, especially those of us who call ourselves Christian, is that we, we stop seeing the seriousness of sin once we become Christians. Jesus has paid for my sins, and I know I should look serious, but I put my trust in him so long ago that I just don't feel like it really matters. And so we present ourselves as morally good people. And while we may say the confession, and while we may sometimes feel a bit down about sin, the truth is that our lying, our greed, our hating of people, our selfishness, our deceptions, our self-love, 
they just don't feel very, very serious. Other things feel like real serious issues. But sadly, we rarely feel overwhelmed with the need for our sin to be sorted out. And in the life of Samson, we're going to see how serious sin is. And that actually, what we need more than anything is a holy savior, someone who can deal with our sin. In Samson, we see here is somebody who can do anything, but he's not holy. He's not holy. And as we see Samson, we're going to see how much better the Lord Jesus is. We always kind of say that in the Old Testament, but I think in Samson, you see it so brilliantly. You see, okay, here is what would happen if God sent an almighty, mighty Savior to sort out the problems of the world, but sin wasn't addressed. This is the armies of the UN, but no ability to change the human heart. And Samson shows us that you and I, we need a holy Savior. A mighty one's just not enough. It's both and. You know, sometimes the option of either A or B doesn't work. You need both and. Would you like apple crumble or custard? Uh, I'm sorry, it's both and. You can't give me the choice. It's both and. Would you like ice or cream? No, 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 it's ice cream, please, right now. Uh, would you like your aeroplane on the next flight to have a right wing or a left wing? Both, please. Would you like your police to be tough to tackle crime or honest and upright and free from corruption? Uh, both, please. Well, throughout Judges, we've seen none of the human leaders that God raises up is perfect. None of them quite do the job of getting the nation of Israel back to where they should be, living for God. But in Judges 13 to 16, we see that in a particularly sharp way. We see they need a savior who is both mighty enough to deal with enemies, but also holy enough to deal with sin. We need a both and. It's not enough to be one or the other. We need a mighty one who is also a holy one. And Samson is only one of these two. Now, as I said, uh, last week we're in the second cycle in Judges. Each cycle uh, highlights three judges. And in the middle cycle... There's a real emphasis on the character, or actually the lack of character of the judges. So you've got Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and they do get worse. But Gideon has sort of cowardly tendencies. Jephthah is foolish, and Samson's a thug. So you get the coward, the fool, and the thug. It's not your ideal leaders. Um, it, I'm not going to make any comments about the current political state of any country in the world. Let's move on. Uh, sadly, this is far too big a section to work through. Uh, in any detail, especially on a very warm evening. So what we're going to do is just pick a couple of the big themes. We'll look in detail at 13, 1 to 5, and then skate through to show two big themes. The, if you can ignore the, the outline on your, um, on your service sheets, um, Nick was taken ill, and, um, and so we're, we're looking at things in a slightly different way from the, from the outline that, that was prepared earlier. So, okay, 13, 1 to 5. Firstly, God's people need a holy saviour. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, this should be familiar if you've been coming through Judges. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. It's been the familiar refrain. God rescues his people, and they show their thankfulness by turning their backs on God very quickly and living just the way they want to, worshipping whoever they want to, and becoming just like the people who live all around them just as godless as all the Canaanites that surround them. And again, their sin leads to suffering. It always does. 
For 40 years, we read, they've suffered under the brutal rule of the Philistine invaders. And yet in these verses, we read in in the unhuman patience, the infinite compassion, God raises up a savior. Verse 2, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The child, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. All that is kind of familiar. Okay, they're in trouble. They've been oppressed because of their sin. God raises up a savior. There's some kind of uh, question about the birth. That often seems to be an indication God's about to work. Yep, great, all standard. What's missing between verses one and verse two? There's no cry for help. First time in the book of Judges. Every other time, The Israelites are oppressed, they cry for help, and the Lord raises up a savior. But now there is no cry for help at all. No cry for help. They are so utterly lost, they don't even cry when they're oppressed. And when in chapter 15, Samson does go to fight the Philistines, far from rallying to his side, uh, God's people hand God's savior over to God's enemies. 15.11 Don't you realize the Philistines are rulers over us? You have no right to to raise up and and save us from our oppressors. How mad is that? They're so utterly enslaved, so conditioned by their, their oppression that they can't even cry out for rescue. They don't imagine it's even possible. And when they rescuer appears, they can't even see him. Thankfully, God doesn't need our permission to do things. He's God. He gets to do what he likes. And so he rescues them in spite of themselves. And out of sovereign love, he raises up this mighty deliverer. Now look what's emphasized, though, in the promises of deliverance that are made to Manoah's wife. Verse 4. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and you do not eat anything unclean. You'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. God's saviour, God's deliverer, is to be set apart for God. He's to be different. He is to be, in Bible language, holy. Now, the Nazarite vow, back in Numbers 6, was all about being dedicated to the Lord. It was about living differently as an expression of dedication to the Lord. So they had to abstain from alcohol. They had to avoid any uncleanness, like dead bodies. And they were not to cut their hair. Do you know how long your hair would grow if you didn't cut it at all? Do you want to know what the record, the world record for the longest ever hair is? Of course you do. It is. It was in dreadlocks, uh, which they teased out. Uh, and the man was quite old by this stage, but 62 feet. 62 feet. Can you imagine the amount of shampoo required? Extraordinary. Anyway, Samson didn't get quite that old. So who knows how long his hair was? And anyway, he was stupid enough to get it cut. But the point of the uncut hair was here is a visible expression of a different life. You can't miss somebody with hair that long. It's like, wow, what's, oh, you're a Nazarite. You're set apart for God. When you read on in chapter 13, this need for Nazarite holiness is repeated. Manoah's wife repeats it to her husband in verses 6 to 7. 
Now, he's pretty stupid and has no idea of what's in, in God's word, the Bible. So when the angel comes, he asks for confirmation from the angel, although his wife has just told him what the angel says. And the angel basically says, it's what I told your wife, but it gets repeated. Utter holiness of life. Three times these requirements for holiness. Holiness. Be set apart. Be different. You can't be like everyone else if you're going to deliver everyone else. That's the emphasis. The people of God in their sinful mess need a sinless savior. The unholy people need a holy savior. That's the point. Throughout Judges, we've seen the people have been behaving just like the Canaanites all around them. As Nick told us the first week, they've been thermometers that just reflect the heat that's around rather than thermostats that set the temperature, that change the culture. That's the root cause of all their suffering and their sin, is their sin. They're suffering because of their sin. They wouldn't need a mighty warrior if they stopped living sinful lives. And so all the emphasis here is God's going to raise up someone to deliver you from the Philistines, and he needs to be holy because the real problem here is your sin. That's what's causing you your suffering. So the disappointment when chapter 14, verses 1 to 2, follows 13.25 is enormous. Look at 13.25. So 24, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtal. What's he going to do? The spirit of the Lord stirring in him. What's he going to do? Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. And then what he says next is literally, she's right in my eyes. So much for holiness. Now, the issue here is not racism. The very next book of the Bible, the book of Ruth, written at the same time as the book of Judges, is the love story about the marriage of an Israelite man to a Moabite, one of the worst of the Canaanite peoples, named Ruth, who is the hero of the story. There's no problem in marrying somebody from a different tribe if they join God's people. The problem here is religious and political. Samson is not welcoming a pagan woman who wants to come and join the people of the one true God. He's compromising. He's marrying her as a pagan and welcoming her pagan worship and her pagan ways into his life and his home simply because she does it for him and he wants to bed her. That's about the long and short of it. And throughout the chapters that follow, we see Samson has the might to overcome the, the Philistines, but he totally lacks the holiness to help God's people with their sin. Okay, so second point, Samson helps us see Christ just a little in his mighty strength. Samson helps us see Christ a little in his mighty strength. Now, you'll know if you've ever seen a children's Bible for your godchildren, or if you remember them yourself, Samson always appears because he's a gift of a story for a storyteller. You've got this massive guy who's very strong. I don't know why I'm doing that, as if that helps you visualize it. Um, but it's, a, it's not his propensity for prostitutes and petty, brutal vengeance. It's his massive strength that makes him a great story. So some bits don't make it into the children's Bible. But he's got, he's got kind of comic book Marvel superhero strength. 
In 14, 5 to 6, he comes across a lion. We're told in verse 5, it's a young lion. Don't think Simba at the start of Lion King, as we were shown this morning. It's, it's not some young lion, little nice cute cub um, mewing on the side of the road. It's, a, it's the word for a full-grown adolescent. So young enough to be full of adrenaline and aggression and strength, but fully grown. This is a seriously dangerous lion. The lion decides to make Samson lunch, and Samson turns it into a KFC variety bucket, just sort of rips it up. I mean, barely even breaks a sweat, goes off on his hot date, doesn't even think to mention it. I'd be telling everybody if I'd ripped apart a lion. Samson is just... He snaps ropes, cords, bowstrings, basically every single material possible at the time he snaps, we're told about, like they're charred flax, as we would say, in 1515. Uh, famously, he dispatches a small Philistine army with the jawbone of an axe. I mean, what I, that's the thing that really gets me. Uh, I get that, you know, he's been tied up and handed over to them, so he grabs the first thing he can, the jawbone of an axe. But after he's killed the first 20, he could have picked up a sword that one of them had dropped, but no, he carries on with the jawbone. It's just ridiculous. Uh, next up at the chapter of 16, uh, beginning of chapter 16, one day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. He's trapped in the Philistine fortress city of Gaza where he'd gone to make use of the red light district. The massive city gates have been closed and he's now trapped and they've got a chance to get him. No matter. When he's finished his business, he gets up in the night and just like he's doing a deadlift in the gym, takes the, the entire gates and gate posts, hitches them onto his shoulders, marches up the nearest hill, drops them and walks home. It's ridiculous. And finally, in his last tragic act, a huge temple. It's at St. Paul's Cathedral of the day. And he gets put against the two main bracing pillars and just pushes the whole thing down. It is ridiculous. It is godlike strength. I mean, do you ever watch um, The World's Strongest Man? It is just classic post-Christmas vegetating on the sofa telly. It is brilliant. You've just got to watch it. Uh, the competitors, uh, it seems to be sort of entry-level weights. They, they talk about the lightweight guys of 18 stone. Uh, and they have the ones who've won, the last couple of years, it's been won by the mountain and the beast. You, know, you expect to win World's Strongest Man with a nickname like that. And the finale is the Atlas Stones. It's um, these enormous things. That's a 200-kilogram block of concrete that they sort of wrestle, eyes popping, veins bulging, bursting pretty much onto these podiums. The picture we're given here is of Samson being the kind of guy who would have wandered up to that 200 kilo concrete ball and popped it up and started spinning it on his finger and then like it's a basketball. He is just stronger than anybody. It's comic. But the question is, why on earth does God gift this kind of ability with his Holy Spirit? Why would he do that? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, patience, self-control. Why is the Spirit empowering this kind of brute force? Well, very simply, because the Philistines were a warmongering, brutally oppressive, violent tribe. And Samson was on his own. As we've seen, he couldn't expect the Israelites to join him like Gideon had. You know, start things off and the Israelites will join in. No, when Samson tried that, they just handed him over. It's him and nobody else. The only way to defeat a mighty enemy 
is with a mightier saviour. And as we look at Samson, we learn something that is very neglected about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not the airbrushed Swedish hippie of the, of the sort of weird mid-20th century art. He is not a man who would be blown over by a strong gust of wind. He is a mighty saviour. He is an enemy-crushing, death-defeating, Satan-slaying hero of a warrior. That doesn't mean he's not compassionate, loving, gracious, and kind to his children. It's both and with Jesus. But he is also the mighty warrior who can overcome and destroy anybody and anything who threatens his loved children. And the thing is, sometimes when you have a brutal enemy, you need a mighty savior. And it's a good thing. Now, this is Norm Hadley, uh, Stormin Norman. Um, he's a Canadian, yep, the first picture was the one. Um, Canadian second row, six foot seven and 21, 22 stone. And he became famous when he was over in uh, Britain. He was a uh, captain of the Canadian rugby team. And he played for London Wasps. And there was an incident that, where he became rather, rather famous when he was, uh, he was on the underground. And there, was, um, there were a couple of, uh, of louts were smoking on a troop carriage. And there were a few people on the carriage, so nobody could see anything. Everybody was just very, very interested in their newspaper, except for a little old lady who told them off because um, they were being rude and abusive and they were smoking. And so they decided to show how tough they were by um, taking her on. And uh, they were just starting to lay into her. But what they hadn't noticed is while they'd been uh, verbally abusing her and preparing to physically abuse her, the tube doors had opened and closed again. And the next thing they knew was the feeling of levitation. As both of them came across above the ground and were smashed together by Norm Hadley and knocked out cold. Uh, they then decided to get off the train at the next station. And he literally picked them up, smacked their heads together and dropped them on the floor and then threw them out. The next, and you think, good on you, mate. I mean, that's actually, when a little old lady is being violently attacked, you need a mighty saviour. You need Norm Hadley to step in. When the devil is confronting you, when death is preparing to eat you up, when the addictive power of your sin has utterly overwhelmed you and you are powerless to fight back. That's when you need the Lord Jesus to be Samson plus, the mighty saviour the Bible tells us that he is. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus' death on the cross in Colossians 2 as he writes about what the gospel achieves. Paul says this, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus Christ disarmed all powers of evil on the cross and publicly ground them into the dirt. He is the mighty savior. And in Samson's life, we do see something, some little hint of the might of Jesus Christ as he defeats sin and death. And we mustn't lose this aspect of Jesus. He is the mighty one you can trust when life is terrifying. He is the one who commands the storms and they're still. Even death doesn't frighten him. When sin seems overwhelming and overpowering, or when rather dark things terrify you, 
Remember that Jesus is Samson plus. Trust in him as a mighty savior. But the main note of Samson's life is not victory but failure. And Samson helps us long for Christ in his lack of holiness. He may have had mighty muscles, but his willpower was dweeb-level puny. And the consistent theme of these chapters is one of tragic failure because of a lack of holiness. Now, again, there's lots that could be said here, but the big overarching thing we see again and again is Samson is a man ruled by his appetites. Again and again, when the choice is honoring God or fulfilling one of my appetites, he goes for the appetites. The words of Paul in Philippians 3 serve as a damning condemnation. His God is his stomach. His appetites rule him. 14, 1 to 3, we already saw it. She's right for me. She's right in my eyes. Get her for me. I saw, I wanted, I took. Samson and his first wife, just like Adam in Genesis 3 with the fruit. What he saw with his eyes, he will have with his hands. 15, 8 to 9, the lion he killed is now a carcass, a dead thing, and it's lying in a vineyard. You're a Nazarite. Vineyard, wine, dead thing. You're meant to be holy. He saw there was honey in it. He was hungry, so he ate. And he defiled his parents too by giving some to them. What he wants with his eyes, he eats with his mouth. 16.1, went down to Gaza, saw with his eyes a prostitute, so he took her. It's no surprise that he's undone by a woman in the end. Unbeatable in battle, but utterly weak to anybody who opens the bedroom door. He fell in love with Delilah in 16.4. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the Valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. What can you do? He fell in love. How can you blame him for that? What was he doing in Sorek, dating? I mean, what was he doing on his online dating profile, Philistine women? You know, he's, he's meant to be rescuing Israel from the Philistines, not looking for wives and prostitutes amongst them. But the extraordinary thing, actually, when you think about it is, it's not some cunning new trick that the Philistines or, or the devil have to come up with. It's not plan B or C or D. It's just the same old, same old. His lustful eyes trip him up. He never got control of it as a young man, and now it'll be the end of him. And I wonder if you've learned this lesson. Put it this way. You don't grow out of sin. You don't grow out of sin. Children grow out of picking their noses, sucking their thumbs, throwing food around their tables and wetting the beds. We all hope that's the case anyway. But no one grows out of sinful, selfish habits. Oh, we might get more sophisticated in the way we express them, but we don't grow out of sin. It doesn't die naturally. It has to be uprooted. So don't kid yourself that you can put off fighting sinful habits now. The casual materialism that spends far too much on self and image. The need to be liked by others that robs you of courage to stand up for what is right or stops you being useful in sharing the gospel. The angry outbursts that sometimes scare those we love. The lustful monster that we feed regularly the self-righteousness and pride that looks down on anybody who's not struggling with sins that I'm over. Fight now or die later. That's the choice. Sin doesn't die naturally. Did you know, too, that pretty much every time Samson fights, it is for selfish motives? Did you see that? Revenge for outwitting his silly wedding ritual, 
uh, riddle in chapter 14. Revenge for his wife's family in the second half of chapter 14. And then in chapter 16 at the end, revenge for himself. Humbled, bowed, crying to God. But listen to how he prays in 16 verse 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. No concern for all the people of Israel, just for my two eyes. That's Samson. And when he's finally captured in 1621, it's his eyes that they stabbed out. But he's been blind from the start, spiritually blind. His eyes were only used to look for ways to fulfill his appetite. He never looked at things in God's ways. As 14.3 put it, he just lived his life by what was right in my eyes. Spiritually blind, and eventually he'll be physically blind. Blind to how God sees things and blind to how they truly are. And Samson is a sobering warning to you and me about our sin. You can be unbeatable on the battlefield... And yet, like him, wooed, outwitted, and overpowered. Yep, overpowered by temptation. And really what this text is, is about the weakness of the world's strongest man. And as it teaches us about him and about the dark nature of sin, it sheds light for us on the foolishness and the misery and the destruction of all that we play with and nurture and ignore and excuse. Don't play with it. Sin seduces the wisest of people into doing foolish things. Sin makes the strongest of people weak and give in to temptation. Sin can make the godliest of people do the wickedest of things. Be careful about your attitude to sin. Don't be casual. You are never so strong that you are immune to the most foolish and destructive of sins. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. And what the point of this chapter, though, when you step back and look at the whole of the Bible, is not just to lament for Samson's lack of holiness and long that I would be better, but to look forward to a, well, to a holy saviour, someone who can save sinners. You see, Samson could never be the one to save the people from their sin because he's got too much of his own. To turn to Samson for help for sin is like saying, I'm desperately in debt. I know, I've got a friend who's bankrupt. I wonder if he'll pay me out. Don't be stupid. An unholy people needs a holy savior. You see, the enemies we face are not just the mighty enemies of the devil and the power of sin and death. They're also our lack of holiness, our love of sin our weakness in the face of temptation and the judgment that it means we deserve. And the strongest of men in the Bible is not strong enough to deal with that. But that shouldn't drive you to despair. That should drive you to Christ. And in Christ, we find the strong man who overcame the devil and set his children free. The one who is strong not just to, to destroy Satan, but also to resist sin. The one who always did what was right in the eyes of his Father in heaven. The one who went to prostitutes not to use their bodies, but to save their souls. And forget the, the nagging words of Delilah. Here's a man who resisted the temptations of the devil every hour of every day of his life. And because he lived a holy and a righteous life, 
he is able to save unholy, unrighteous sinners. The wonderful verses in 2 Corinthians 5, at the end of that chapter, Paul celebrates, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, in Christ we find one who can give us the righteousness we lack. In Christ we find the one who can satisfy God's justice for my sin and filth. In Christ we find the one whose resurrection brings the power of the Holy Spirit to resist temptation. In Christ we find the one whose exaltation to God's right hand means he's always interceding for us, for our salvation, for our righteousness, and for our help in the face of sin. Samson is all about the weakness of the mightiest man. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we find one who, well, one who is holy. Holier than Samson could ever dream of being and stronger than Samson ever was. Here is a man to follow, a man to trust, a man to rejoice in. Let's pray. Our Father, as we see the mess and the misery of Samson's life, as we... As we see how sad it is to see one who is so gifted but godless, one who is so mighty and yet so weak to temptation, one who can win in battle but who always seem to give in. Our Father, we pray that we would heed the warnings of the subtlety and the power of sin. But more than that, Father, as we see what Samson lacked, would we see what the Lord Jesus has? As we lament Samson's failures, would we rejoice in the in the holiness and the mighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ? And would our trust in him be deeper? Would our love for him be greater? Would our admiration for him be unending? Amen.